Welcome to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your co-host. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Jacob Smith, the rector at Calvary St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. He and I will be your guide every Tuesday to a grace-infused, cosmopolitan look at the lectionary passages for the week. We'll do our best to help both pastors and churchgoers alike to connect the never-changing truth of God's grace as found in these texts with what feels like an ever-changing and sometimes confusing world. And we'll do that all in 25 minutes or less. Here we are, yet another episode of Same Old Song. And let me begin by acknowledging a claim you made. I just saw Rogue One yesterday, and you said it's maybe better than Empire Strikes Back. I was slightly incredulous, and I repent of that. I think that film was so good. I I can't say enough good about it. So, Jake, to you, uh, to the victor, go the spoils, my friend. And right when you're right, you're right. Well, I know my Star Wars. I really felt like that was a perfect Advent Star Wars movie, even though we're watching it during Christmas. It's like kind of, you know, the coming and uh, all of that. I love how it ended, but we won't spoil that. So... Yeah, we we could just do a spoiler just for fun, but we 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 won't. We'll be better human beings. No, well, we are. That. We are. We can still say Merry Christmas because as Christians, we're still celebrating Christmas. We can also say Happy Holidays because this is the seventh day of Christmas, and we are celebrating uh, not only New Year's Day this Sunday, but we are also celebrating, most importantly, the Feast of the Holy Name, the Holy Name of Jesus. No holier name. That's right. It's the name above all names, as a matter of fact. And every knee, every knee shall bow. Even Donald Trump? He's a close second. But uh, um, I was actually thinking about that, uh, Donald Trump. You know, you, you think about his name. His name is absolutely everywhere. It's on Trump golf courses, Trump hotel, Trump this, Trump that. And it's really funny. It's going to be like in, you know, 80 years, people are going to be like, he must have been an amazing president. His name is absolutely everywhere. Absolutely, man. I mean, that's, you know, he knows how to do it upright. We just lost 50 uh, listeners today. So that's all right. That's all right. We got to keep it fair. Keep it fair. Yeah. Rodney Dangerfield says. (laughs) Good. Well, uh, so we uh, jump in in our uh, first reading today on uh, this feast day. Um, And just to go back, I just want to clarify, too, that we can, as Christians, say happy holidays. And the reason why we can say happy holidays is because uh, Christmas is still happening. And what happened was, is in the church, you have these 12 days of Christmas that span from the 25th to uh, January 6th, where you begin to celebrate the feast of the Epiphany. But there are all these little ho- holidays in between, these little church holidays, and uh, the t- the, that's where the phrase came from, uh, from these holy days to holidays. And so feel free to say holidays. You're not a pagan if you say that. Say it loud and say it proud. You might still be a pagan, but not for saying that. That's right. So but we jump right into Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27, and uh, we begin this powerful Old Testament reading on this day with the ironic blessing. Uh, and uh, is, that, is that the ironic blessing? No, it's the aironic blessing from Moses' brother. What would and... be an ironic blessing? Because you think about <laughs> one of the things about Alanis Morissette's ironic is that mm. like 
a lot of it's not ironic. Sometimes, mm. like I like my biggest pet peeve is when somebody says, "Oh, isn't that ironic?" When it's really just a coincidence. Yeah. So if you were going to try to come up with an ironic blessing, what would that be? Well, I think uh, our readings would testify today that an ironic blessing would be a blessing out apart from the name of God. And so that actually the name of God, Jesus, uh, connotates blessing. Where God has placed his name, there you will find blessing. And uh, he has placed his name in specific places. But uh, this name, Jesus, brings blessing. And apart from that, and it may not be the blessing you're looking for, like wealth, health, and prosperity, but it is uh, a blessing nonetheless, the blessing that you will not die forever. Yeah, and I think when we hear the term blessing, right, we tend to think of things like prosperity mm-hmm. or, uh, or health, sec- health, health or security. Wealth. But actually, oftentimes it's like money. Like we don't really want money for money's sake. We want it for what it gives us. So like mm. you th- this is what's so freaky about the Joker in the dark night when he just lights a pile of money on fire. It's like, what? We don't understand the economy you're running here. Like, so I think that like what we want, because God's wired us, to be social beings, we, we require this affirmation of our being. Like Martin Buber talks about the I-thou interaction, right? So mm. we require stuff. We require this connectedness to other people. And yet we also tell our kids, we tell our friends, oh, don't, if somebody's dating, oh, you've got to, you know, look like you've got it together. That's it. You don't get a boyfriend by looking like you need a boyfriend. Or you think about like, in a, there's this place in Bridget Jones's diary where Love she makes all the, three of those movies. There you go. We're, this is, we're just going to turn this into a film podcast. Mm-hmm. But she basically says that it, something like the key to, you know, getting a boyfriend, if you buy books by unreadable literary authors to put impressively on your shelves, develop inner poise and authority and sense of self. And as a woman complete without a boyfriend, since very best way to obtain boyfriend. Mm. <laughs> or uh, she has another one where she says, be assured, receptive, responsive woman of substance. Knowing my sense of self comes not from what other people think, but from, from, from myself. Wait, that can't be right. <laughs> so she's onto something though, because like we do need this sense of, uh, it, it, there is a need for us for, to have our self affirmed. Right. And so when we say, oh, the answer is sort of like, to low self-esteem is, is only caring about what you think. But we've met people that only care about what they think. Like, there's this story about Winston Churchill. Like he, his valet was rude to him. And he says, well, you were rude to me. And his valet says, sir, you were first rude to me. And Churchill just said, yes, but I'm a great man. I mean, there's a guy who's only crit- he's, you know, he's a critic of one. So like, how do you, how do you avoid both like, you know, low self-esteem and the kind of overesteem that turns you into a terrible person, it's, I think it's somehow in getting the blessing of God. Because you can, it's, it's the great Reformation insight, right? It, well, it's just the New Testament insight that in order to love, you first have to be beloved. Yeah, that's right. And that you actually, uh, in receiving this love, you're getting what you don't deserve. Um, I think that's the big that's the big skew in the world when it comes to blessing, is that people uh, think that they basically deserve it. You know, you talk to most people out there, and um, you know, you say, so so what do you think about yourself? Most people say that they are basically a good person, 
and that they they deserve this. And so, but the real profundity uh, of God's blessing is that it it informs you actually who you are and how much you're loved despite yourself. And um, and this is a this is a very powerful thing about God's blessing is that actually when it's at work. It, it brings great comfort because it exposes us. This is why Paul would say in his later epistles, I'm, I'm the chief of sinners. You know, he doesn't say that I've really improved and, uh, you know, sanctification, progressive sanctification has really worked itself out in my life. No, he still says it towards the end of his life. He's the chief of sinners. Yeah. And I think maybe like the prototypical blessing story in the Bible, right, is Jacob mm. and where he gets, he, he sort of through scheming imaginations with the help of his mother, Rebecca steals his brother's blessing. But when he actually winds up outsmarting his brother and outsmarting his father, he's actually afraid. He fears for his life. He fears like in stealing the blessing, he got the curse. And it's interesting because you see this at the end of, I think there's a connection here to numbers because at the end of the ironic blessing, it says, may he make his face to shine upon you. Earlier in Moses' story, we hear that no one can look on the face of God and live. It, Moses mm. says, let me see your glory. I can only show you my backside, my back parts. Mm. It's like the divine moon or something in, mm. in the weirdest sense. But, <laughs> it, but, so, but so there has to be, how can you will someone to see the divine face if the divine face is death? It, I think there's a clue here, and I get this from Ian M. Duguid, who wrote a little commentary on Genesis called Living in the Gap between promise and reality. Basically, in the midst of Jacob's fear that actually he's received the curse and not the blessing, Rebecca says, upon me be your curse. Mm. And Ian Duguid, this commentator, says, in the most awesome reversal of all, Jesus graciously says to us what Rebecca rashly said to her son, upon me be your curse. Mm. And so this is where I think because of the grace of God, you know, no one, no one has, has seen the father except the son who, who makes him, he exit in John one, it's exeget, exegeto, right? He exegetes the father. And so, and in that exegesis of the father, the, the presence of God becomes, you know, it's interesting because what we lose in the garden, right? Is not God's presence in some sense, because God is omnipresent, but we lose God's presence as comfort. And so yeah. all of a sudden, you know, they heard and they hid. And what Jesus bearing the, the, the turning away of the face of God allows the face of God to actually be a blessing rather than a curse. Yeah, that's really good. Also, I think, too, uh, in light of this Old Testament text, you know, it's interesting right before the Aaronic blessing is the Nazarite vow. And uh, there is there's a connection here, and that is always in um, Jewish theology. Uh, prior to the arrival of the Messiah is Elijah, and um, and John the Baptist functions as the new Elijah, especially in Matthew's Gospel. But so, and what you see there, and so before this blessing which comes in the name, you have the Nazarite vow given, and this this will correlate with next week's reading for the first Sunday of Epiphany with John the Baptist on the scene, baptizing Jesus in whom this is my well-beloved son, in whom I'm well-pleased. And it is in Jesus that this passage of Numbers chapter 6 is ultimately fulfilled. It is in his name where the Lord actually blesses you and keeps you, where the Lord makes his face to shine upon you. And it's in the name of Jesus where God is always gracious to you, lifts you up with his countenance. 
and gives you his peace. And I believe it could be something good has begun. Well, peace train sounding louder. Tonight on the peace train. Amen to that. And we move on to Philippians 2. Yes, this is one of my favorite passages of all time. Uh, Paul's uh, Paul's description. What is, what is your least favorite passage of all time? Oh, you know, I don't have one. You're so pious. <laughs> You're so Christian. No, but I do love this passage. This passage uh, has always brought me a lot of uh, comfort, I think. What do you find particularly comforting about it? Oftentimes reminded of that uh, song by Blood, Sweat, and Tears, uh, What Comes Up Must Come Down. And uh, this is this is true in life. And I think that this passage, Paul is not only uh, talking about the life of Jesus, but he's also, on one level, we can talk about our life because the truth is, is that what comes up must come down. And, um, and I think most people experience this during the Christmas holidays. Maybe they have about 30 minutes of amazing uptime with their family gathered around the tree, but then, you know, drunk Uncle Harry says something or that confrontation that occurred with your mother uh, you know, back in October takes place and is rekindled around the dinner table. But indeed, the truth is, especially in this holiday season, what goes up typically must come down. And this is Paul's point when he says, you know, um, though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of the slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. So you see that point, what is up definitely comes down. And that's true uh, with Jesus. That's true with your life as well. But here's the good news of the gospel. And that is in Philippians, the point that Paul is making is that uh, in Christ, in this holy name, uh, what is down won't stay there. And uh, the truth is, is that there is nothing outside of the redeemable grace of God, including the relationship with your mother-in-law. And if what is up has come down, then in Christ and in that holy name, what is down will eventually come back up. Yeah, and there's this interesting sense that the means of that, right, comes in God's own self-emptying. You know, there, Bart, Carl Bart says in the Church Dogmatics, Things in Volume 4, that God is no higher than in his own humility. And that if you have a problem with that, that there's something wrong with your doctrine yeah. of God. That, that, that God is, is there's no, nothing that displays a divine power more than divine humility. And we were talking earlier about this article that has made the rounds mm -hmm. as of late. Uh, right after the election, this professor at, I think, at Columbia, he's a professor at yeah, Columbia University, Mark Lilla, teaches humanities. He wrote this essay called The End of Identity Liberalism, and he was basically saying that one of the reasons that Hillary Clinton lost was because there's a huge group of people that feel alienated by this sort of overemphasis on identity politics, on demographicizing everything. And, and you know, he's saying that, you know, what ha great presidential candidates cast a unifying vision. And he, and this is a guy who's a left of center guy. I mean, he's not a, a cranky conservative. And, you know, there's been lots of responses to this piece, uh, uh, both positive and negative. I mean, some people a lot said, of negative. Yeah. Yeah. Some people have said he's, he's David Duke without robes and this, and again, this is a humanities guy at Columbia. I mean, this is not, this is not somebody 
that it's not a conservative talk radio show host, but it is interesting that so often in a culture with all like ours, which for all of its beauty and blessings and freedoms, that freedoms quickly spill over into entitlement and. And then what happens there? I heard Tim Keller once say, once say uh, he was on Morning Joe, and they said, and and Mike Barnacle said, "What do you do about demonization? I mean, the Tea Party demonizes big business, and you know this group demonizes that. Or, or, or I'm sorry, like liberals demonize uh, big business, and the Tea Party demonizes government." And Keller said, "Well, it, it's I'll tell you, the answer is kind of simple. It, strangely, if you don't idolize, you don't demonize, or you don't have to demonize." If you make an idol of government, you have to demonize the private sector and big business. Likewise, if you make an idol of wealth and entrepreneurialism and capitalism, you have to demonize the government. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you idolize gun rights, you have to demonize people that want gun control. It doesn't matter, you know, however it works. So like w- whenever somebody sits on the divine throne, mm-hmm. right, that's idolatry. <laughs> and, and what's amazing is the picture you get in Philippians 2 is... God getting off the divine throne mm. to rescue those who've been pretenders to the throne of you and I. Yeah, I think that is a, I think whatever po- policy or politics you embrace, this is kind of the world's lie that we have made. And that is that, um, you know, man will become God and, um, and uh, God appears as man um, and these things. Uh, but the, but, but there, it's never, it's never a story of condescension. And I think this is what makes the gospel and what Paul is getting across here in Philippians chapter two, so profound. And what makes Christianity unique is no other story has the story the truth of Jesus Christ, uh, the God who condescends himself to take on flesh and become man to live and die as one of us so that in him we might all be saved from our idols and from our ignorance and our desire to uh, enthrone ourselves. brings us to the birth of the king still in Luke chapter two. So much in this passage. Yeah, there is a lot, um, uh, a lot. And it's very, very powerful. And I think this is kind of, I think, you know, in John chapter one, which was the gospel reading from um, last Sunday, uh, Christmas day, uh, John writes in John chapter one, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And uh, this really is the effect of that uh, word dwelling among us in flesh, uh, kind of the wonder that takes place um, in the shepherds, the wonder that takes place in Mary and Joseph as they see uh, this child lying in the manger. And I love uh, what uh, Daryl Bach has to say in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke. It's a really... uh, It's a great commentary, and it says, In this account, each set of characters plays a major role. The angels present the commentary of heaven on the events of Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. They identify the child and reflect the heaven's excitement that this child has come to do God's work. 
the shepherds have the type of response any of us should have as we contemplate these events. Their curiosity leads them to go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. And as they see God's word honored in the presence of the sign, they come to testify to God's work and tell the story of the child. Mary depicts the wonder of experience, the inbreaking of God in her life. She pondered these things in her heart. The audience of the shepherds' report were amazed. Their response exemplifies the awe that should fill anyone who hears Jesus' story. In addition, there is the shepherds glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. This birth is no mere arrival of a new life, as poignant as each such event is. The story is not told so that hearers can identify with the new mother and father or enjoy a story of hope of a touching birth and humble surroundings. This birth has value because of whose birth it is. The shepherds have found that the angels' words were true that events have transpired just as they had been told. God's word is coming to pass. His plan is again strategically at work. They break out into praise to God because he has sent Jesus, the Savior, Lord and Christ. This is all happening as it is. The word made flesh dwelt among us. And to contemplate these things would take an entire lifetime. And, uh, It should tear like our hearts, Mary's heart, in two. I mean, this is just such a powerful, powerful thing. I think the other thing that we see, too, is is that the law is being fulfilled in every way on our behalf through the vocation of Mary and Joseph, too, as they take Jesus in order to have him circumcised and uh, and the name given to him that was given when he was conceived in the womb. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's interesting. This is a time in our... You know, for some of us, you know, in between Christmas and New Year's, where we've had, we have some time to think and reflect on, on things, the year, our lives, and maybe read books that we haven't had a chance to get around to or see movies that we wanted to see. And Ross Dothit wrote this great column in the New York Times. Uh, I think it's his most recent column called Varieties of Religious Experience. It's a very interesting column. And in the end of it, he says, as a, as a strictly intellectual matter, I'm very confident that God exists. Mm. In dark times, though, and this has been a dark year in many ways, I wonder if the absolute relates to us in the way that my church teaches, if he will really wipe away every tear and make all things that we love new. This is the wager that Christmas offers us year in and year out. It isn't Pascal's famous bet on God's very existence. Rather, it's a bet on God's love for us a wager that all the varieties of religious experience, wonderful and terrifying and inscrutable, should be interpreted in the light of one specific history-altering experience, a divine incarnation, a baby crying beneath a pulsing star. Mm. The odds on that wager feel different year to year. They change with joy and suffering, tranquility and crisis, sickness and health, but I haven't found better ones. Merry Christmas. Amen. That's really good. I think that's the thing to remember, too, though, is that, uh, you know, they're just uh, beginning to release the uh, photo journal of President Obama and the photographers who have followed him around for the last eight years of his life. And uh, and you see that it's it's this they, they photograph each day. And I think when we approach the gospel text, we need to remember that um, this wasn't written, you know, each day of Jesus's life. This was written in light of the entirety of his life. And so that indeed this scene of the manger and the wonder and merriment 
eventually leads us and takes us to the cross. This wonder and merriment is written in light of the cross and in the death and then culminating in the resurrection of Jesus. We are given the guarantee that this Christ child, God himself in flesh, does indeed love us very much. And by his death and resurrection, in those means where he's placed his name, his bap- your, your baptism, a holy communion, and in that word preached, uh, he will never leave you nor forsake you. Yeah, and there's this great word in uh, verse 19 that I just near and dear to me. The Dothit piece reminded me of this. And there's this great passage where Bonhoeffer says, one cannot simply read the Bible like other books. One must really be prepared to put questions to it. The reason for this is that in the Bible, God speaks to us, and one cannot just proceed to think about God under one's own steam. Instead, one must ask God questions. Naturally, one can read the Bible like any other book and so study it from the point of view of textual criticism. There is absolutely nothing to be said against this. Only this way of going about things does not unlock the essence of the Bible, but only what lies on the surface. Think of how we come to understand something said to us by a person we love, not by dissecting it into bits, but by simply accepting it as the kind of word it is, so that for days it echoes within us, simply as the word of that particular person whom we love. The more we, like Mary, ponder it in the heart. Wow. Well, that's a great place to leave it for today. We'll see you next week, my friends. All right. Thanks for listening to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. To find out more about Mockingbird, head on over to our website, mbird.com. And if you've got thoughts or feedback, insights you'd like to share, this is a new endeavor, so we'd love to hear them. You send me an email at scottjones at mbird.com. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.